According uh, to one dictionary, there is a word in the English language that has 179 meanings or definitions. I'll let you work on that, but don't let it preoccupy yourself until we get to the end. I suppose there's no other English word that has that many definitions, but um, you might find one. The text for this sermon is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 28. This document to the Hebrews simply has as its title to the Hebrews. And there is a certain mystery surrounding this work. Scholars have not made much progress through the years trying to figure out a few things about it. We're quite, not quite sure, for instance, to whom it was written. It was written to the Hebrews, but are these Jewish people who continue in the synagogue or are these Jewish Christians? And the problem with the title is that, not to put too fine a point on it, but the truth is it seems to be written to Gentiles. Moreover, we don't know who wrote the book. Many suggest that it came from uh, the circle of St. Paul, and it may very well have done so. We cannot get at these kind of details today. That just simply is not our goal or our purpose. But I do. I do have some matters that I want to bring up in this particular text. And uh, what I want you to see is... Um, that this is an extraordinary work, an extraordinary book that has benefits for believers. It has brought great comfort, but also to believers it has brought great discomfort. It has brought to believers great hope, but it also, in many passages, has discouraged many uh, believers uh, because there is... Uh, a clear, a clear denunciation of sinfulness and a clear uh, promise that all sins uh, will be judged and that God, who is holy, cannot tolerate such in his presence. He is the Holy One of Israel. Its comfort and hope, though, are found in the once-for-all atonement that the Holy One has made through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, let me start then at that point. Remember that the text is found in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 28. But this text presupposes some things, and that's where I want to start. Now, why the discomfort and despair that you find in the book of Hebrews? Because it is related directly to human sinfulness. If you read to the he Hebrews, you will begin to understand something about who God is. And one of the things that God is throughout the book is that he is utterly holy. Uh, human sinfulness you will find in the book of Hebrews is um, man's deepest and most serious problem. 
Now, some of you may be shocked for uh, someone to say that in the present day. That's, that's, that's for 2,000 years ago. But here are some sobering passages that the Bible has to say in the book of Hebrews about sin. If you look at chapter 6 and chapter 10 and come away uh, with uh, uh, comfort from those passages, then I think you have misread them. They are meant to discomfort the comfortable. You may say, Pastor, but don't you think sinfulness, uh, really today we have psychology and we have sociology and we have anthropological studies and it's really not as serious today as it was in the day in which this was written. Everything is culturally uh, conditioned and, and certainly the seriousness of sin uh, is. Well, it is true today that there is not much about sin in our society. Uh, I read with care General David Petraeus's uh, resignation, and I was curious as to how he would talk about uh, his situation. And let me just quote from his resignation. Quote, after being married for 37 years, I showed extremely poor judgment by engaging in an extramarital affair, end of quote. There's, there's no doubt here that this man who is used to being responsible has released a more responsible statement than any politician would. Still yet, notice that he cannot bring himself to include God in the picture by saying that it is sin. There is no mention here of sin, and clearly, that is a sin. Now, you see, the reason that there is no mention of sin, I believe, and I don't know David Petraeus's religion. He uh, is Dutch, so I think that he's probably either Dutch Reformed or Roman Catholic if he has a religious background. But there is no mention here of sin. It's a mistake, a serious mistake, he says. And the reason that he calls it a serious mistake, of course, has to do with his relation to the military and the fact that he has very close uh, relations with secrets and could be blackmailed. And that becomes then a problem for him. But in the eyes of God, it was a sin against his wife, but most importantly, against God. Now, uh, General Proteus, was, by the way, was born in Cornwall, New York. I don't know whether you know that or not. Cornwall on the Hudson in 1952. So that's his situation. And um, he had a lot of courage to read that quickly in public. Now, I, I went back and looked at some statistics of and some people who had directed the CIA. I, any of you remember Alan Dulles? He was almost associated with the CIA for many years from 1953 to 1961. Those are the golden years of the CIA. In fact, he was the one who built the CIA campus that's there now. And if you walk into the building, and I never have, but if you go in there, you won't see a monument to, to Dulles. What you will see is an inscription which says, his monument is around you. The whole building, the whole campus. Now, many people knew the, the political uh, class and the chattering class knew that in his day he had many affairs. Uh, 
In fact, his daughter says that he had probably 100 affairs while he was in office. So why David Petraeus? Well, I smell some political skullduggery. That's a great word. You should look it up. Uh, it covers a lot of bases. Nonetheless, what I'm interested in that this whole thing is dealt, dealt with in a political and modern psychology. There is no real mention of the offense against God. Now, why is that? Why is there no mention of God? I know we live in a more secular age. But even those who I know are religious are reluctant to talk about sin. And the reason is, it seems to me, that we have lost a sense of the holiness of God. And what you will find in the book of Hebrews is that this writer has not lost a sense of the holiness of God. He's quite aware of what sin is and what it can do. Now let me continue to talk about sin. It is discomforting. Number one, there is a loss of the holiness of God. It is quite clear that in our society that we are losing a conception of God, much less the holiness of God. It is having consequences on our lives. If I understand my text, there is no other way to deal with sin. You really can't be counseled out of your sins. Your conscience really cannot be salved over by medicines. We try. We try, but we really can't. In the Middle Ages, for instance, they tried to do this when sin was quite prominent. They used to have what they called sin eaters. And these are very, very poor people who would be hired to go and sit by the grave or the body of a person who just died and to eat their lunch or their supper. In so doing, they, they, they believed magically that in some ways their sins were being eaten up too, being consumed because they were so close in proximity to the spirit. Therefore, the person would spend less time in purgatory. There are many ways we've tried through the ages to minimize this fact of life. So, so what's so wrong about it? Well, let me tell you one major, two major things that are wrong with not owning up to this word. Number one, the scriptures do declare that our sins have separated us from God. Now, that is a serious thing. Our sins have separated us from God. When David knew he had sinned, he knew he had sinned against many people. But if you read Psalm 51 carefully, what does he say? Oh, Lord, I have sinned against you alone. Now, he knows that he's hurt many people. But he's so aware of who God is and his holiness that his main purpose in confessing what he has done is to get right with God. To get right with God. The Apostle Paul reminds us over and over that our sins are deadly. As I've preached a series of sermons, you are dead, he says, in your trespasses and sins. So we undermine, if you will, our blessedness 
and joy in life when we will not own up to what we are. There is joy in forgiveness. There is joy over one sinner who repents. Number two, this is an interesting text, and I still quite haven't got to it, so be patient. It's not going to be as long a sermon as you think. <laughs> two, notice that it's using the word shadow and reality in the text. Now, this is quite interesting. Almost everyone in the Hellenistic world of the apostles, or at least the, where the apostle Paul went, knew some Greek philosophy. And they knew that Plato had written the Republic, and they knew that Plato had this notion or idea that all around us in the material world is kind of a shadow to compare what is really real and true in what, what philosophers call Plato's heaven. Every chair that you see or bench in front of you is a copy of the ideal one in that place. And it possesses more reality for it never changes, but this bench eventually will, will deteriorate and decay. And you die. So this world possesses much less reality than that world which is above or in the mind. And so the writer is using that imagery because there is truth in this. They even thought that Plato was a Christian before Christ even came because of ideas like this. And it's true that in the passage that we have here, the author is saying that in the Old Testament, those sacrifices that were made concerning sins could indeed for a while cleanse the sanctuary so that you could go in and meet God in the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. But it never really genuinely took away sins. For year after year, the high priest had to go into the one place where nobody else could go on earth in the holiest of holies and offer up a sacrifice for sins. And for one year, you might say, they were reminded that they needed a permanent forgiveness of sins. So what about sin? What does it do? It takes you into the shadows. I, I, I saw my cat recently and I saw... Uh, the tail, but not the tail itself, the shadow. But I knew the cat was there because I saw the shadow of the cat's tail. And I knew the cat was in the room and the sun was shining in a certain way, the light, and there was the shadow. And I looked around the corner, there's the cat. Now the shadow has some reality to it. It's based on the cat's tail. Everything in this life possesses some reality to it, but it's not the real thing until you get to heaven. You're subject to death and dying. You're subject to decay. You're subject to all kinds of pains and woes, and you were never made or intended simply to live a life like that, to live in the shadows. If you read the poet of T.S. Eliot, he loves this imagery, to live in the shadows. What sin does, it continues to take you deeper and deeper into unreality. And it robs you of any joy or bliss that you may have. And the way back, of course, is through 
confession and repentance and seeking God's forgiveness. But how is it possible for a person to be given? Now I'm at the text, and this won't take long. Look at the text. It is a marvelous text. It says some extraordinary, profound things. And as you look through this, let's start at verse 23. It was necessary then for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, the Old Testament sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves were a better sacrifice than these. He uses the word plural sacrifices, but remember he's using it in a certain way. And for Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself. Now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. The way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Let me say a couple of things. From God's perspective, there is only one way to deal with sins, only one way to know true forgiveness. And that is through the cross death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, outside the city of Jerusalem, and I'll round it off to 2,000 years ago, from the human standpoint, he's still in the shadows like all human beings are. Something is happening there on the cross. A man is being crucified. But the Romans had crucified thousands upon thousands to scare away their enemies. They put down slave rebellions through crucifixion. Sometimes they would line the roads to Rome with the heads of those that they had killed to warn anyone you don't rebel against Rome. And so Christ, in some sense, from the earthly standpoint, is just another person being put to death. In the time of Pontius Pilate, in the political turmoil of the land of that day. And that is kind of the shadowy thing that historians try to deal with. And from the human standpoint, in our things, it still looks kind of shadowy. But from heaven's perspective, a total deep reality is taking place. It is the reality that God is counting this man's sacrifice as an eternal sacrifice for sins. The bulls and the goats could not do away with one's sins, but this is one sacrifice that everything pointed to that would finally be a basis for forgiveness and blessedness in life. And he was entering at that time the true sanctuary in heaven. And he did not have to die over and over for one time he was to die for sins. It was a permanent remedy. 
once for all. And he emphasizes the onceness because you're going to die once. That kind of excludes transmigration of souls, doesn't it? Or reincarnation. That's incompatible with Christianity. You are going to die once, says the writer, and you're going to be judged once. But what you want to do when you die that one time and go to judgment that one time is to know that your sins are covered by that one atonement. And you are redeemed. And on that basis in the day of judgment, when God looks at you, he does not look at you as that miserable and weak person who's dishonored the name of God or that person who's failed time and again to live up to one's standards. But he looks at you through the merits and atonement of Jesus Christ and he will say to you, enter the joys of thy Lord, thy good and faithful servant. What the writer is saying is that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. But in order for you to receive that, an awful, awful price was paid. The death of the Son of God. But it has an eternal benefit since he was both man who could die for you as a man and God. His benefits were eternal. Die for you once at the end of the world. That's why this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It focuses upon Jesus and what he did for us. This is the gospel. This alone can remove the stain of sin. Nothing else. Now, I believe in counseling. I believe in medicines. I believe in lots of things that we use in our life. But if the stain of sin is to be permanently removed, it is through the cross of Christ only. There is redemption in him. And this is why we assemble each Sunday on the Lord's Day to sing praises and hymns, to confess our sins, to affirm our faith to that one alone who can restore us in fellowship with the living God and remove our sins. Now the conclusion. Did you think of a word that had 179 definitions? Well, that word is run, R-U-N. Run. Look it up in the dictionary. Even small dictionaries has a page. Run, R-U-N, and its combinations. Now, I said that because it's interesting that theologians down through the centuries try to systematize everything. It's the nature of human beings, philosophers and theologians, to systematize everything. If you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith or the creeds, you will discover that there's quite a wonderful, neat treatment of the Trinity. And mainly, it's tempting to tell you what the Trinity is not, because the Trinity is a deep mystery. And there are many doctrines, doctrine of Scripture, 
the doctrine of human beings. You will find that theologians down through the centuries have refined our thinking and helped us to understand. After all, Christ placed teachers in the church to do that. But what they have never done is come up with a theory of the atonement that is definitive. The atonement is so rich in one sense, in restoring human beings to God, removing their sins, so central to human history and the new creation, that we have to look at it from many perspectives, from the perspective of the courtroom, from the perspective of substitutionary atonement, from the perspective that is a demonstration of the love of God, from the perspective that is a, it is a defeat of the powers. And you can go on and on and on, and you have to include all of those teachings in the Scripture to begin to even approach what God was doing in Christ when he was reconciling the world to himself. Christian friends, if you go away from this place today, at least go away with this. Your blessedness and your peace ultimately and finally can only be found in the cross of Jesus Christ who died for you. Some of you may be struggling with some things in your life. Our, our way is to confess and to repent and to beg God's forgiveness through faith in him. That's it. That's the only response you can give to the gospel. And the gospel is very simple. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This is the gospel. Amen.